The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. You never know what kind of greeting you're going to get when you meet people, connect with people. Neil came up to me today and said, I really liked what you're doing with your hair, the color. It's... <laughs> Teresa said, my wife, she said, it must be changing pretty fast. I, I said, I'm taking my lead from Keith. So... There was a day when I started teaching my first full-time job at 32 at University of Northwestern St. Paul. I felt compelled to grow this little goatee thing because I didn't look much more than a big brother to most of my students. Um, Things change. (laughs) So, Today's question. Where in the Old Testament did Paul get the idea that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures? Raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Let's consider some texts. First of all, just general texts in the New Testament that teach that the Old Testament anticipated not simply the resurrection of Christ, but a third-day resurrection of Christ. Jesus, after His resurrection, opens up the minds of His disciples to understand the Scriptures. And He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. Where would you go? In the Old Testament, to identify that Jesus' resurrection was anticipated. Not only that, that it was a third day resurrection. Where would you go? Now, if you look up Luke 24, and, you know, helpfully we have Bible translators that not only give us the text, but they add to it often our little cross-references, right? That's where I'd go. I'd go and look at the cross-reference. So I go to Luke 24 and say, help me out, guys. Show me where this third-day resurrection is. So I look, thus it is written. There's a little N in my Bible. 46, oh, see Matthew 26, 24. That that doesn't help me any. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. I see a little P next to 46 and it says John 20, 29. Well, my my translators aren't helping me too much, giving me good cross-references to the Old Testament. Thus it is written in the Old Testament that Jesus was to rise rise from the grave on the third day. And these translators say, I don't know where to send you. But Jesus thought it was there. So, what do we do? Where do we go? The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw, he believed Jesus is risen from the dead. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Not a third day text, but the scripture said Jesus should rise. Acts 17, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is indeed the Christ. Acts 26, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here, Festus, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Okay, I can go back to the prophets, I can go back to Moses, 
and read what? That the Christ must suffer and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Here's the second explicit third day text. I delivered to you as of first importance, says Paul, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Two things to be found in the Scriptures, that Christ suffered for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's what we should be able to find when we open up our Old Testaments. So where do we go? That is the question today. Now, one place that... Well, this is how I'm I'm thinking about this question. I want to take the lead of the New Testament as much as possible. So there are a number of times where the New Testament authors are actually arguing for the validity of the resurrection, and they use their Old Testaments. So what texts do they go to? Where do they find the resurrection of Jesus anticipated in the Old Testament? And do any of them talk about three days? So, let's take a peek. Mark 12. And as for the dead being raised, Jesus says, Have you not read in the book, Sadducees, the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush. You know, Exodus 3. In the passage about the bush, but Jesus didn't have chapters and verses. Those weren't added until 1250 and 1500. So we've got, in Jesus' day, it's not broke, the Bible isn't broken down into all the sections that we have. So he says, you know, the passage about the bush. How God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong to think there is no resurrection. Okay? So Jesus reaches back to Exodus chapter 3. Is that where you would have gone to teach about the resurrection from the dead? Jesus thinks it's a good spot to start. Acts chapter 2. This is much more significant with respect to not just general resurrection, but the resurrection of the Christ. Notice Jesus' uh, Peter's words in his sermon. Right after Pentecost, he's declaring, Jesus has been risen from the dead. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. Where does he go? Psalm 16. For David says concerning him. In Peter's mind, when David was preaching Psalm 16, proclaiming Psalm 16, he was writing concerning the Christ. Okay, what does it say? I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. Why? Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not Let your Holy One see corruption. This body of mine is not going to decay, says David. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. You all know where his tomb is. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his own descendants on the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not abandon to Hades, be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. When David received the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that God would establish His throne forever, the promise grows out of the fact that David says, when you grow old and are buried with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you to sit on the throne. 
I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. It will come after David dies. David already knew it. He knew his throne was not going to last forever. Well, sorry. He knew that he would not last forever on that throne, but that it would be someone after him, one of his own children. David's body saw corruption. As I'm reading Psalm 16, I'm not seeing a two-stage development wherein David is the initial fulfillment and then one greater than David comes after him. Instead, he is operating as a prophet giving direct prediction regarding the resurrection of the Christ because there's no initial fulfillment. His body does see corruption, so we need someone greater than him. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Now that is a very significant text. So when I'm looking at the Old Testament, I think I can find the resurrection in that text. And I would argue even before Peter gives me that perspective, I could find it in Psalm 16. But there's no three days mentioned in the text. And what we're told is that he rose from the grave on the third day according to the Scriptures. Here's Paul in Acts 13. We bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So in Acts chapter 4, Psalm 2 is cited with respect to all the nations and the peoples plotting and raging against God and against his Messiah. And Peter says, this happened at the crucifixion, when Pontius Pilate and Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the Gentiles and the leaders of the Jews put Jesus to death, doing exactly what God's plan and foreknowledge had predestined to occur. Directly in alignment with the scripture that the nations rage in Psalm 2 against Yahweh and against his anointed And then, on the other side of the raging, comes this move from not simply you are my son to a son who is begotten of the Father. And Paul says that statement of begottenness is a statement about the resurrection. Now, I don't know that I would have been able to see that super clearly without Paul's help. That, that we've come to a special point in Psalm 2 where now we're talking about the resurrection. But what is clear is that right after this, he's given all the nations as his inheritance. Right after this, this very victorious son who's overcome all the God hostility that the nations are bringing toward him, at this very moment now, the son moves in triumph. Up to this point, the nations have been raging against him. Now he becomes the begotten son of God and... Then he moves in power. Something is shifted in Psalm 2. A little bit further, we see Psalm 16 show up again. Paul says, And as for the fact that he raised him, God raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, Psalm 16, You will not let your holy one see corruption. When Paul and when Peter read Psalm 16, they saw testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. This isn't something that just happened randomly, but it was part of the hope that was building in the Old Testament for a Christ who would conquer the grave on behalf of all of his own. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why? Because God has moved. He has done something in the resurrection. Here's the two texts. Isaiah 25, this is what's cited in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Hosea 13. 
The vision that Isaiah has, looking ahead, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be on that day. Behold, it will be said on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now there's a question as you're moving through Isaiah 25. Are the ones who are rejoicing and feeling saved only those who were alive at the moment when he swallowed up death? Or does this include the death that was experienced by all from generation to generation to generation? Even among those, they are declaring, Behold, our God, He has come to us. He has saved us. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol, asks the Lord? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. And yet it won't be forever. And Paul sees that when he cites that text. Okay. Those are New Testament texts, most of them pointing to Psalm 16, but a few others, Isaiah 25, Hosea 13, where the New Testament authors see resurrection in the Old Testament. But none of them had third day. Resurrection. So, next I want to look at a handful of texts the New Testament authors didn't cite, but that they could have. That clearly anticipate that on the other side of death will be life. There have been many who have said the Old Testament saints didn't really have a clear vision of afterlife. I fully disagree. See if you can fully disagree after I go through my list. Here's the first explicit resurrection text in the Old Testament. Right on the heels of an entire chapter focused on curse, curse, Israel's exile, this is what we read. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Notice that healing comes after the wound, which suggests that the structure of the first parallel is also significant. I kill and I make alive. It's not, I make alive, and then I kill. No, the end of this text is life, on the other side of death. It's a vision that once God brings curse, curse is not the final word, but in His mind, there's going to be a life that comes on the other side of destruction. And He's the one who brings it. Here's Hannah. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol. That is, you enter into the grave, but then He raises up. That's resurrection. That's hope. And in 1 Samuel 2, it's directly associated with the hope of the Messiah. Isaiah 26, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. This is not an idea that resurrection is just a New Testament doctrine. This is Old Testament hope for something beyond the grave. They were experiencing the trauma of brokenness. The bodies decay, wearying out. Wearying out. Is that a word? A phrase? Wearing out. They knew what that was. And the remnant put their hope in God. A rock-solid confidence that God was working for them, even overcoming the power of death. 
I love this passage. This is another text I would, without question, along with Psalm 16, I would go to this text to talk about Jesus' resurrection. You know the passage really well. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him, to put Him to grief. When His soul, this one that was crushed by Yahweh, when His soul makes an offering for guilt. So picture the altar and now the, the goat. Sins are declared on this goat, unblemished, not dying for its own sin or ailment, but rather the hands are placed on the goat. You are now me. And now all that unblemished nature is put on me. All of my sins are put on the substitute. And he's carried off by the priest to the altar. His neck is sliced. He's cut up. And his carcass is put up on the altar as a guilt offering. That goat is dead. When he, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, we're supposed to read in that text, he's dead. It was the Lord's will to crush him, to put him to grief. Why? For our sin, for our bitterness, for our anger, for our lust. All of that put on to the Christ at the cross. But now it says, once he has, his soul has made an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Do you see what's happened there? He was dead. And now he sees. For the joy set before him, he endures the cross despising its shame. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That's the joy that was set before him. That moves him through death, confident that life is going to come on the other side. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, the, knowledge, the righteous one knows what's going on. The servant. He will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their guilt. Isaiah 53 is not only a portrait of the suffering servant, it's a vision of the resurrected servant. But there's no mention of three days. Ezekiel 37. Remember that vision? A massive battle has gone out. The wrath of the Lord has been poured out on His people. And what they are is a valley of dry bones. Carcasses that have been eaten away by the vultures. All that's left is dry, dead bones. Can these bones live? God asks Ezekiel. Prophesy to these bones. Live. So he does. And this is what we read. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones that you've just seen take new shape. The Spirit of God, His wind, blowing over the entire field. And all of these dead skeleton remains all of a sudden becoming upright, becoming people once again. These bones of the whole house of Israel, 
Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off, therefore prophesy, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I'll bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open up your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. The imagery here is building off of (coughs) imagery in, in the book of Deuteronomy, wherein the exile of Israel is portrayed as utter destruction, complete death and desolation, which implies that if anything is going to come afterwards, it would have to be resurrection. It would have to be new birth, something brand new, a new creation, overcoming the old, because the old has completely ended up in death. That's what we see here. Just a few more Old Testament resurrection texts. Kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust... So they go down to the dust, that is, they die, and yet they will bow down to Him. So there's a vision here that even on the other side of the dust, there's a person who is alive and well, able to bow down to the living God. Even the one who could not keep himself alive this side of the grave. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them In the morning, their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. The vision here is that there is something for the believer on the other side of the grave. That the power of Sheol will not have a final hold on him. Resurrection envisioned. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Today, you're my guide. Tomorrow, you will receive me. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God. But God is not only the strength of my heart today, He is my portion forever. That vision that even on the other side of a failing heart, life. If a man dies, shall he live again? Good question, Job. All the days of my service I would wait until my renewal should come. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's a confidence in the resurrection. It's the confidence you and I are to have today, even amidst all the weariness, all the brokenness. God wants us to have this confidence. Last of the texts. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All of these, a number of important texts about the resurrection, but still none of them third day texts. Okay, Matthew 12, let's go there. So, here's a text where Jesus, he at least builds an analogy a three-day analogy back to the Old Testament. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. From the perspective of the Ninevites, 
They worshipped the fish goddess Nanch. That was their chief deity. Jonah, all of a sudden, comes out of the fish, and what they, they viewed the fish as power. And all of a sudden, Jonah is proclaiming a different god than Nanch. He's proclaiming Yahweh. Repent. Forty days in the judgment. And they repent. They see the fish as a place like a tomb. And all of a sudden, Jonah overcomes the grave. From Jonah's perspective, we read in Jonah chapter 2, the fish was not the tomb. The fish was an object of salvation. He sings his song in Jonah chapter 2, his song of salvation. Great salvation the Lord has given me. For him, death was the water. And as soon as God captures him into the fish, he's saved. But that's not the perspective we get from the the Ninevites. It's not how Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 12. The Ninevites saw the power of God overcoming death in the life of Jonah. And they would have repented had they seen someone raised from the dead. But Jesus says His audience will not. There's a three-day element there in the book of Jonah that we get in the life of Christ, and there's at least an analogy. The question is, would any of us, just in reading the book of Jonah, have been able to build that analogy, said, look at Jonah overcame the fish, and we should have expected that the Messiah would overcome death in three days. I wouldn't have naturally gone there. But it's totally fine to build the analogy. The question is, is the the analogy that Jesus is building intentionally grounded in the book itself? Or is he just identifying a historical pattern? I'm not going to give you any more sign than the sign of Jonah. There's more, though. How about this one? This is, along with the Jonah text, I think a very possible text that is on the mind of Paul and Jesus when they say the Bible talked, anticipated a third-day resurrection. Come, let us return to the Lord, says the prophet. Why? Because He has torn us. Not to destroy us, but to heal us. It's often how it works. We experience the discipline of God because He wants to put us in a context where we can receive grace. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to humble people. He has torn us in order that He might heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up, says the prophet. When? After two days, He will revive us. Indeed, after three days, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Now when Hosea says this, he's talking to Israel, the community. When he says the Lord has torn us, he's talking about the nation. And yet the representative of the nation is a person. He is the king. And we know from Hosea's contemporary in Isaiah chapter 49 that Jesus is so identified with his people that he can gain their name. The Lord called me from the womb to be his servant. He named me Israel. Isaiah 49 verse 3. He named me the one who was called from the womb to be his servant, he named me Israel. And then he said he gave me a mission to restore Israel. Isaiah 49 verse 5. His name is Israel and his mission is to call Jacob back and to restore Israel back to God. But it's too light a thing that I should just redeem the, um, the tribes of Israel. I will make you a light unto the nations. 
Jesus is so identified with his people that he bears their name. He is Israel. Not only that, in Hosea chapter 3, we learn that right there on the heels of their great restoration, on the other side of exile in the days of the Messiah, it explicitly mentions in Hosea that both Yahweh, their God, and the new David, their king, will be side by side, ruling and reigning together. So if Israel's going to be redeemed in the final day, on the third day resurrection, at least in Hosea what we see is that the, ones who, the one who's going to be bringing it is not simply Yahweh, it's David. He's the one who's going to lead them into their resurrection. So it seems possible that this could be one of the texts. Galatians 3 explicitly says, He became a curse for us, in order that through Him the blessing of God might reach all the world. He fully identifies with us in our sin, so that we might fully identify with Him in His resurrection. So we've got the Jonah text, three days in the belly of the fish, three days in the tomb, risen. Then we've got Hosea that specifically says on the third day he will raise us up. How about the third day resurrection of Isaac? Yes. The writer of Hebrews says, Abraham considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, that is, Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, Hebrews there is only talking about Isaac being raised from the dead. But there's more going on there in Genesis 22. Because the very place where they take Isaac is Moriah. And the writer of Chronicles wants us to know, 2 Chronicles 3.1, that the place of Moriah is the very place where the temple is built. It's also the very place where the place of the skull was, where Jesus was crucified. There's a picture, a trajectory of substitution that's growing out of the Isaac text. Now look at this. Have you ever seen this? The text opens up. So God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him at the place where I will tell you. Then, just two verses later, we read, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. God declares, your son is dead. And on the third day, he arrives at Mount Moriah to experience something. Notice how he talks. Then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Did you get that? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and slaughter him at the place where I will tell you. You guys stay here, and me and my son are going to go worship, and then we'll, we'll be back with you. Well, didn't God tell you you're going to kill your son? But now he's telling the servants, we'll be back. We will be back. I and the boy will come again to you. Thus, the writer of Hebrews says, he considered that God was able to raise his son from the dead. Then what do we get? The angel said, okay, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. <clears throat> and Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Substitution. And all instances of substitution in the Old Testament point ahead to one greater. But his son is, as it were, raised from the dead on the third day. 
In Abraham's mind, he's been dead for three days. I know what's coming. And now on the third day, his son is raised from the dead. Would this have been one of the texts? One of the stories that, in reading it, pointed ahead to something greater than itself. Could be. We're walking backwards through the Old Testament. Now we go to the Exodus. See if you can track with me my argument here. Here's the New Testament pattern regarding baptism. You're baptized into death, and then you rise. Do you not know that all of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This baptism imagery, that on the other side of water judgment comes resurrection. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, (coughs) in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Now, Jesus died and was raised. Our baptism somehow pictures that. As we go underneath the water, it's a picturing of our death. It's our drowning. The old man is dead. But because we've identified with Jesus in His resurrection, we come out of the water. That's the imagery. Now, what I want us to see is that Jesus is one called the Passover Lamb, Two, what he brings about through his death, he calls an exodus. The dying, slaughtering of the Passover lambs, followed by the exodus. And he actually calls his death, that is the means by which the exodus comes about, he calls his death a baptism. So what we expect is that Israel, who experiences the substitution, goes through the waters of judgment and doesn't experience the judgment on themselves. Jesus does that for them. Here it is. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's he's not talking here about his baptism into John, that John does for him. He's talking about his death, and he calls it a baptism. Then, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So we have an exodus, we have a baptism death, and Passover lamb. Now what does Paul do? I'm trying to think, where in the Old Testament is the third day resurrection talked about? And Paul says, he identifies the Red Sea water judgment as a baptism. Israel was baptized into Moses, says Paul. And Jesus represents Israel. As they went through the waters, they were being baptized, as it were. That's what he says here. For I want you to know that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and into the sea. Baptized into Moses. So because Israel's Passover marked their birth as a nation, and because the Red Sea episode likely happened on the third day after the new creation... The Exodus may point to Christ's third day resurrection. As Jesus is brought through the water, sorry, as Israel is brought through the waters three days after experiencing the Passover, and their calendar, their sacred calendar, (coughs) always starts on Passover. It's the birth of the nation. 
New creation happens at Passover, and three days later is resurrection. So it may be that we're supposed to see a pattern here of three days through water judgment and resurrection on the other side. Where do they get the three-day thing according to the Scriptures? Last possibility, you might think this is a stretch. I don't think it's that much of a stretch. Two things that we see in the New Testament. One, deliverance through water. Resurrection is identified as deliverance through water judgment. We just looked at those two texts. The other thing that we see resurrection language connected to is new creation language. Sprouting seeds. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, like a seed in the ground. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Right in the midst of the Exodus, on the other side of the water of judgment, Israel comes out on the other side and they start singing. And what do they sing about? You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain and place the place, O Lord, which your hands have established. It gives rise the the resurrection flowing out of the watery judgment gives rise to a new planting. And Paul is able to identify resurrection language with planting language. But this is the bigger one. Would you ever look at Genesis 1 and think that resurrection, Jesus' resurrection is anticipated right in Genesis 1? What do we have? We've got a watery chaos, and it's on day 3 that the sproutings come. New creation becomes visible. Chaos becomes visibly overcome on day three. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit, in which there is seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Even here, it could be part of the pattern. Like the pattern is being set forth right here. For new creation is is realized on the third day. It started on day one. When God begins to overcome with light, overcome darkness. But it becomes visible as, as new ground yielding fruit and seed only on day three. So Paul said that the gospel that Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, he said this is of first importance. The first importance is the gospel. The gospel is of first importance. There's nothing more foundational. And my final comments were just to unpack reasons why it was of first importance. Um, But our time is up. I, I think there's five of them. I'll just read them and, and we'll be done. Through His resurrection, Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power, which supplies us power for salvation. Without the resurrection... He would not have been appointed the Son of God in power. He was heir to the throne. He took the throne. And because of that, all that power is pointed in our direction. Through His resurrection, we are no longer dead in our sins. If He didn't rise, we're still dead in them. Why is it so important? Because Jesus wants us to recognize the freedom we have from our sins. Through His resurrection, we are born again to a living hope. This was our text this morning. This is so, so central. Because Jesus rose, we know that we will rise. And though this body is corrupting, 
We have hope beyond this body. It's so vitally, foundationally important. Through His resurrection, we gain a good conscience before God. We get an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection from the dead. That all of a sudden, I can stand before God, once a sinner, still sinner, sinful, having still that struggle, but having a new identity in Him, and truly having a conscience that's been transformed. And we gain victory over the second death. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. So, just of first importance, everything hinges on Jesus being raised from the dead. Because He rose from the dead, we can trust Him. That all of the words that He declared are true. And because of that, all the rest of the Old Testament becomes valid for us. All of the hopes, all the anticipations, all the promises, yes, because He rose from the dead. Let me pray. Father, thank You that You have been with us. I pray that You would go before us now. Father, we thank You that death has been overcome. In that, we find hope. Thank You for a message this morning to remind us of Your greatness and of hope. How desperately we need it. Thank You that You have conquered and that You're leading us in victory. In Your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.